chapter 4, because you are sons, God has given you the spirit of his son. There's a connection between the gift of the spirit and our sonship. And there's a work of the spirit sealing our sonship, making us feel sure that we are indeed the children of God. It's not the same as new birth, because regeneration or new birth leads you to faith. Unless, unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter. You, you, you have to have a work of the Spirit leading you to faith. But there's a sealing of the Spirit which is upon faith. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is, that is a subsequent, whether it's subsequent in time or just subsequent logically, we'll, we'll get into that later maybe. But um, it's certainly in one way or another, upon your believing, when you believe or having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, uh, says uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, which is, which is a down payment or a foretaste of the final glory. It's a little bit of heaven to go to heaven in, says uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. But uh, I've been dealing with a little bit of history. I could do much more. I'm trying to uh, feel my way a bit. I don't want to, to overburden you or, or stress you too much. But um, I ended at at the point of saying that the charismatic movement has had the effect of, of dividing us, roughly speaking, into two, charismatics and anti-charismatics, charismatics and evangelicals. And we often uh, talk as though there are only two options. Actually, over the history of the church, there's far more options and possibilities than two. Um, and I wish, I'm not quite sure how I'm, how I'm going, but uh, if I had a bit more time and we were here for a few more days... I would outline about ten. There's a number of uh, possibilities. But the, the dividing line between all the different views about these things, the dividing line is whether you do or don't believe that the outpouring of the Spirit is experiential. And that's why I quoted Packer's uh, remark when I went to see him many years ago. You see, for so many people, ever since about 1880, the work of the Spirit is not experiential. And the reason why they, they, they come that way is because they fear the kind of thing that happened under Edward Irving. Indeed, what uh, Morak has said is interesting because you see J.N. Darby, the founder of Exclusive Brethren, believed in the sealing of the Spirit. He, he was by no means anti-charismatic. The very first generation of the Brethren, William Kelly, uh, J.N. Darby, these earliest of the Christian brethren, they believe in the sealing of the Spirit, just like everybody else did. It was common in, the, in, in those days. But you see, it was, it was Irving that made people pull away from that. Now, the second generation are very hostile because they're scared of Edward Irving and so on. But J.N. Darby himself, the founder of, a, of one half of the brethren movement, was, was a great believer in the sealing of the Spirit. When Dr. Lloyd-Jones is, is, is preaching his great series on the baptism of the Spirit, which you can buy, the, uh, what's he called, the uh, Joy Unspeakable. When you find him listing all the different people that believe the, the view that he's arguing, he will quote J.N. Darby. He will quote the early brethren as believing his view of this outpouring or baptism or flooding. The, early, the earliest of the brethren believed in uh, what I'm about to share with you. But it was the next generation. It was after, after Edward Irving and the kind of wildness of, uh, of that movement. You see, these, these things always produce a kind of reaction. You, you get it all over the history of the church. In the early church, it fell into kind of complacency, and then you got Montanus and Montanism, which was a kind of wild, charismatic movement in the second century. It, it, it greatly attracted people because it seemed to have power, and uh, the, their greatest member was Tertullian. The famous uh, Tertullian became a Montanist. Uh, but it, it led to excess and... Uh, prophetesses uh, predicting all sorts of weird things, none of, none of which ever came, came true. And then you had the same thing in Quakerism. There is no doubt whatsoever that George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, was a man mightily endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And for about 20 years or so, it was a powerful movement in 17th century Britain. But you only have to go a few years down the road and trusting in the inner light and the direct voice of the Spirit leads to all sorts of strange things. And there was that man, William Naylor, I think his name was, who walked into the streets of Bristol naked, proclaiming he was a fresh incarnation of Jesus. And within, within a few years, people were doing the most weird and extreme things. 
You see, there's always this danger that you go from a kind of spiritual dryness where there's nothing of the Holy Spirit at all into the other extreme where you're, you're, you're trusting every kind of feeling, every kind of emotion, anything crosses your mind, you're attributing to God, every sort of picture comes into your head, you think it's a revelation. There's always the danger of going from, from deadness and dryness to, to a kind of a gallibility. And then you're, you're even opening yourself to Satan. You can even be totally deceived, as, as people sometimes were. Richard Baxter, a very brilliant intellectual man, left his wife, threw up his medical profession, began to do all sorts of crazy things. Later on, he confessed that he'd been deluded, that he'd been led into error by, by um, just following every kind of impulse that crosses his mind. So, so these things, as it were, go from one extreme to the other. You get the dry generation. Then you get someone who was in the opposite direction. And finally, it becomes a kind of wildness, a craziness. In Corinth, you, people, you went inside Corinth, you thought the whole place was full of people who were mad, as Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and so on. So the, this kind of uh, tossing around from one extreme to the other is always a problem, and we have to try to find a way of not being spiritually dull and dry and dead and purely academic, just living on books and letters and writing and nothing more than that. But the other extreme, being open to every kind of wind and wave of feeling or any, any, any thought that crosses our mind, we attribute to the Holy Spirit and go into error and so on. Well, there are many, many options. I don't know whether I can... Uh, List them for you. I'm scared to even try, but maybe I will. There's about, there's about ten options. There are those who think that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is conversion, and it's not specially an experience. And that has been the evangelical view from about 1880 onwards. It's conversion. There's no kind of experience in it. You just take it by faith. You've got the Holy Spirit. And that was the, the view up to about the 1960s. And then it began to change as the charismatic movement began. But then there have always been those who've believed the gift of the Spirit is a conversion, but that it's an experience, the baptism with the Spirit, the outpouring, the flooding of your life by the Holy Spirit, experientially, is conversion. It's the same view, only the difference is, on the one side, it's not an experience, on the other side, it is. And this was the view of the early Wesley. I'm using the word early deliberately. Wesley's famous experience at uh, Aldersgate Street, I, I said... Uh, I said Fessor Lane, that was something else, but at Aldersgate Street, which I was confusing just now, in, on the 24th of May, 1738, that famous experience is called Wesley's Conversion. People, people say that's the day Wesley got saved. And Wesley himself started that kind of tradition. He wrote in his journal that that was his conversion. And he sincerely believed that, that uh, feeding my heart strangely warmed, that that was his conversion. And he was not a Christian before that. But he changed his mind. And if you read Wesley's journals in their later editions, you will find they're footnoted. And he keeps on correcting himself. He changed his mind. And he would, when he would say, I wasn't even converted. And then in his later life, he would footnote his, his journals. He would say, no, I, did, I, I shouldn't quite have said that. I had the faith of a servant, but it was not the faith of a son. He, he changed his mind and regarded himself as truly saved, but not quite with the liberty that he ought to have had. And you see, what happened was this. Within the early days of revival, every single convert had this experience immediately at conversion, and to their way of thinking, it was their conversion. But as time went on and the revival subsided, it became more and more difficult to believe that, because you could find people who had not had this uh, powerful experience, and yet it was indisputable that they were saved. They were clearly believing in Jesus, their lives were clearly different, you couldn't question their, their salvation, and yet they could not give the same kind of testimony of this outpouring and flooding that the early people and the same revival had known. And so that tends, to, that tends to produce a change of mind. When you're in the midst of revival, you tend to say, well, unless you know this, you're not even saved. And for a moment, that's the way everybody feels, because it happens to everybody. It's that way in the New Testament. In the New Testament, every single person knows this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Paul wrote to the Romans and said, you've not gone back to the spirit of, adoption, to the spirit of bondage, you know the spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father, he's never been to Rome. He doesn't know one single Roman Christian, except by a sort of vague reputation. He's never been to Rome. He just takes it for granted. Every Christian there is knowing this. That's the way it is in revival. In revival, every single Christian is baptized with power. But as the revival subsides, it, it, it changes, and you find people who are truly saved, but they don't seem to know that quite the same power that the, that the early ones knew. 
And so you tend then to change your mind. You say, well, no, you can have this, but it's not conversion. That's what happened to Wesley. He's forced to change his mind as time goes on, and he changed his mind about that. But in his early days, he regarded this baptism, this mighty, powerful experience, as his conversion. He didn't think he was saved before it. And so there are two kinds of view that attributes this to conversion. And then there are those who think it's basically a gift of holiness. And Wesley also, Wesley was not a stable character theologically. He's always uh, moving. You can't, you can't always pin him down. But uh, in his later life, Wesley tended to say that the baptism of the Spirit or the outpouring or the, the sealing of the Spirit is a gift of sanctification. It removes original sin. It takes away a, a tendency to sin from you and you, you begin to have perfect love. That was Wesley's teaching. And uh, Fletcher of Maidley, Wesley's successor, use the word baptism of the spirit of that um, but then again you get people who who believe that but again they don't want to believe it's an experience uh, I don't want to con- confuse you and all these things are very complicated but in each, each view you have falls into two each view that you have subdivides into those who do and those who don't believe this is experiential so the holiness movement Church of the Nazarene John Wesley they tend to believe that uh, the Spirit comes upon you and it removes the power from sin. It eradicates original sin. But the Keswick Convention movement, they still believe that, but they didn't feel that you felt anything. You take it by faith that, it, that sin has been eradicated. You see, that view divides into two, is whether you do or don't believe this is experiential. And then there are those who think that this is power for service. And again, it divides into those who who stress experience and those who don't. The great uh, name here is D.L. Moody. The great evangelist was preaching one day. He was a a very humble guy, never was ordained, Mr. Moody. He always insisted on being called Mr. Moody. He was just a humble guy. He used to sell shoes. He ran a a shoe-selling store. But he also ran a Sunday school. And he had such liberty and power that that Sunday school began to grow and adults came to listen to his teaching the children and it became a kind of church. And uh, everybody knew about it in Chicago, the most uh, flourishing church. One day he was preaching. As he was preaching, two elderly ladies were sitting in the front row taking no notice of him but praying. Preachers don't like that. Preachers don't want you to be praying. They want you to be listening. And uh, these two old ladies were irritating Moody because they kept on praying when he wanted them to be listening. And so he went to them and said, why, why don't you sort of listen to me? Why, why are you praying all the time? And they said to him, we're praying that you might have power from God. He said, what do you mean power from God? I'm the pastor of the biggest church in Chicago. And you're praying that I might have power from God. Oh, yes, they said, there's more. There's something you don't know about. It's there. There's a level of power that you've not experienced yet. And they, they convinced Moody. He, he came to them and they were right. And he began to pray that God would pour the Spirit out upon him. And he began to hunger and thirst after the presence of God in a way that he'd never known before. And immediately all sorts of troubles came upon him. When he began to seek God, anything could happen. His church burned to the ground in the great Chicago fire. He had no church. He woke up one morning with no church anymore. And he'd go around begging for funds to try and rebuild a building somewhere. And then one day... He was walking along the streets of New York. He said, oh, there was a day. Oh, what a day, he said. He, he describes this day in his, in his little biography, autobiographical ex- uh, fragment. There was a day. Oh, what a day. He scarcely ever met. He didn't tell anybody about it for 14 years. He scarcely ever told anybody. Like, like Paul, with his visions of glory, wouldn't tell anybody for 14 years. I can only say, I can only say I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I had to say, Lord, please, please don't give me any more. That's as much as I can take. I had such an experience of his love, I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went back to preaching again, said D.L. Moody after the Chicago fire. I went back to preaching again. The sermons were not different, but hundreds were converted. It's that that, that changed his life and empowered. He already had a certain gift of preaching. He already was a great preacher and a successful pastor, but it, it baptized him with power such that he had never known before. And that's when D.L. Moody's fame as an evangelist took off. I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand, said D.L. Moody. 
So he had this view that the baptism of the Spirit is... He used to talk about power, but when he's actually describing his experience, he talks about love, which is interesting. He changes the words. I had such an experience of love. But he, his view was that this was a kind of baptism with power. It, it enlarges your gift. If you're a preacher, it gives you power in your preaching. Any other gift you've got, it enlarges the gifts that you've got. That was D.L. Moody's way of putting it. And then there came those, and especially around about the year 1900, around about the year 1900, there came into being a group that began to especially associate this uh, outpouring of the Spirit with the gift of tongues. And that's where Pentecostalism comes in. It comes in from, from about the year 1900. It was a very primitive movement. The people were uneducated. The stories don't always sort of agree. There's a website you can go and see called Signs and Blunders, all, all about uh, early Pentecostalism. They made all sorts of mistakes. But uh, whatever you might think of festive Pentecostalism, you, you can't, one cannot deny God was with them however sort of ignorant they may have been, and they were. They were terribly ordinary, ill-educated people. They were, they were not sophisticated people at all, but, uh, but they launched a kind of new movement. But their, their great uh, emphasis was on the gift of tongues, and they, they taught that, that you, you're not baptized with the Spirit unless you have the gift of tongues, and you know about them and so on. And, uh, but all of these movements, I could tell you more, I'm just trying to be hurried, but uh, in each case, I think I could show you that, that these, these different views divide into two as to whether you do or don't believe this is experiential. You may say, is there such a thing as non-experiential Pentecostalism? And you might be surprised at the answer. The answer is yes. There are people who do not believe. They're Pentecostals and they pray in tongues, but they do not believe the baptism of the Spirit is, is a mighty experience. And guess who the great name is here? Kenneth Hagen. You know Kenneth Hagen? This, this man who uh, pioneered the health and the wealth movement and taking this by faith and taking that by faith. Read his story. When he, when he gives his testimony as to how he spoke in tongues, there's nothing experiential in it at all. He went to a certain place and he just took it by faith that he had the gift of tongues. He didn't feel a thing. There was nothing experiential in it. You even have a non-experiential Pentecostalism. Uh, someone who believes in, in a baptism of power in which you talk in tongues, but you don't feel it. And you take it by faith, you've got it, and then it sort of works. That was the teaching of uh, Kenneth Hagen. And others had done something similar. Totally non-experiential. Didn't feel a thing on the occasion when he regards himself as baptized with the Spirit, and so on. Well, the real question with all of this is, what kind of method should we follow? How, how do you, when you have all these different options or when there's some doctrinal dispute. How, how do you really settle this? Well, I, I would like to propose a method for you. Surely in any particular kind of doctrinal air, area, any, any area where you're trying to find out what you believe, the first thing you do is to survey the scriptures and find the scriptures that deal with your subject. You? you can see me doing it even, even with the fatherhood of God. All these texts, as I'm, I'm quoting, they've all got the word father in it, or the word sons and daughters. The first thing you do is you survey all the scriptures that deal with your topic. And then you go back to your, top, to your, to your scriptures and you expound them and try to see what they mean. And you summarize the conclusions you've come to. Now, with regard to the baptism of the Spirit, the first thing you must do is survey the scriptures. And we don't have just simply one term. The term baptism of the Spirit has become very popular. But uh, it wouldn't be difficult to show there's at least, at least a dozen different terms used in the Bible. Sealing, anointing, earnest, foretaste, receiving power, the promise of the Father, the Spirit falling upon you. It's easy to show that all these things are interchangeable. In, on, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says in a few days' time, you'll, you'll, receive the, you'll be baptized with the Spirit. Then he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, changes the term, when the Spirit comes upon you, you should receive power. There's two more terms, coming upon you, receiving power. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls. You've got half a dozen different terms, all being used at the one and the same event. And uh, it's not, we're not simply confined to one term. And it's quite easy to prove and demonstrate that all these terms are interchangeably referring to the same kind of spiritual experience of the Spirit. And then you survey them all and, and you, you gather your scriptures Found in the Old Testament, Isaiah, predicting the Spirit will come, be poured out. Joel chapter 2, Zechariah 12, 10, the Gospels, John the Baptist, 
constantly saying you'll be that Jesus said you'll be baptized with the Spirit. That he said about Jesus, he'll baptize with the Spirit. Luke's Gospel especially, Luke 24, wait for the promise of the Father, Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 10, Acts 8, Acts 9, Paul, Acts 18 and 19, Apollos and those Ephesian disciples, all these different passages, the epistles, Romans, being, being, uh, receiving the spirit of adoption in whom we cry, Abba, Father, the love of God being shed abroad in our house by the Spirit being given to us, seething, anointing, earnest, all these things throughout the entire range of Scripture. You've got 60 or 70 major passages that deal with this outpouring under these different titles and headings. You've got 60 or so major passages. The whole of John chapter 14, 15, 16. But all the way through, Jesus is saying, it's to your advantage, I'll go away. When I go away, I'll send the Spirit. And he he gives all of these promises and descriptions in connection with a future coming outpouring of the Spirit greater than anything they've known. You already know the Spirit, he says, but yet you're going to know him even more. It's to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, I'll talk to the Father, and we and the Father and I together, we will pour out the Spirit upon you. The whole of chapters 14, 15, 16, all referring to the same coming, outpouring of the Spirit. Then you survey your scriptures, and you come to your conclusions, and you work out how do these things relate to sanctification, how do they relate to tongues, how do they relate to assurance, how do they relate to salvation. You, 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 You study your scriptures and see how these things relate to the various questions that you are facing. That surely is the method that we ought to follow. And although I'm going fast and not trying to uh, work everything else because I haven't got time, that's roughly the, the procedure that I'm following tonight. And it's all, as my basic text says, Galatians 4.6, it's all in the interest of, of making us feel and know that we are the children of God, because you are sons. God has given us the spirit of his son. So then, what, what is the outpouring of the spirit? Very hurriedly tonight. First of all, it's, it's a higher level of the receiving of the spirit than anything that was known in the Old Testament. It is higher than having Jesus with you personally. Jesus would say, well, you've had me, and I've been right beside you. I'm going away, but you're not going to get less of me. You're going to get something which is more than my presence. It's clo- I'll be closer to you than when I'm sitting in the chair next to you or helping you out of the boat or talking to you around the meal table. You're not going to get less of me. You're going to get higher, something higher and greater. It is greater than the personal presence of Jesus there physically in the body talking to you. It's a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus than the physical presence. It's greater than anything in the Old Testament. Every reference to the coming outpouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament is future. It is something which from their viewpoint they had never known is future, is coming. Couldn't possibly come until after Jesus is glorified because it shows you the glory of Jesus. The Spirit, when he's poured out upon you, takes of the glory of Jesus and declares it unto you, says John chapter 14, 15, 16. So there's no way in which you can know this outpouring of, of the Spirit glorifying the glorified Jesus until Jesus is glorified. No Old Testament saint could possibly know it. There's something beyond the experience of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah, beyond anything that the Old Testament saints knew. It's beyond the personal presence of Jesus being with you in the body. It is a higher level of the receiving of the Spirit. It is obviously experiential. How anybody could read the New Testament and deny that the gift of the Spirit is experiential passes my understanding. How can anybody possibly read all these things and say this is non-experiential? Are you telling me that anybody on the day of Pentecost was having to say, well, we've taken it by faith and we've got the Spirit? I mean, is that possible on the day of of Pentecost? Is it possible that you can receive power but not know about it? What sort of power would that be? Is it possible that something will seal you and establish you and be a, a foretaste of heaven? How can something be a foretaste of heaven if you never taste anything? How can it possibly be? How can you have joy, unspeakable, and full of glory, but not know about it? I mean, all these things are, are nonsense. They're all experiential terms. Every term that is used is experiential. Or think of how Paul comes to the Ephesian disciples. He says, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And my friend Charlie will tell you, I like uh, comparing it to Paris. When, when did you go to Paris when you went to France? What does that mean? Well, it means I know you went to France. I'm not quite sure whether you went to Paris. 
You can go to France without going to Paris. I know you went to, to France, but I want to know, did you go to Paris? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? It means I know you believed, but you can believe without receiving the Spirit. Otherwise, well, why ask the question? And what I want to know is, well, I know you believe. I want to know, did you, did you receive it in an experiential manner, in a conscious way? And what a question to ask if the gift of the Spirit is not experiential. What, if the, what, if, what a, a foolish question to ask if the answer is, well, who knows? We can't tell. We, we suppose so. We, we sort of take it by faith. The question doesn't make sense. The question only makes sense if this is something memorable, conscious, that you know that at that time when you believe you either did or you did not at that time receive experientially the Spirit. Otherwise, the sentence makes the question makes no sense. Or Paul in Galatians chapter 3, trying to prove justification by faith. He says, well, you know, when you, when, you, when you receive the Spirit, was it in connection with the law or was it with the hearing of faith? Was I saying to you, uh, make sure you keep the Sabbath and make sure you're circumcised and uh, don't eat bacon for breakfast and go to Jerusalem three times a year? And I was expounding the law. And as I was expounding the law, the Spirit fell upon you. Is that what happened? Or was it that I was just talking about Jesus? Jesus, Jesus, who is the Son of God, who died for you upon the cross. And as you saw that Jesus died for you upon the cross, the Spirit fell upon you. How did it happen, said Paul? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Is that, on that day, when you received the Spirit, just remember, how did it happen? But by my preaching the law to you, or by the hearing with faith? And they can remember the experience when the Spirit fell as Paul was preaching the gospel. And just by believing the gospel, the Spirit fell upon them, and they, they began to rejoice with a joy unspeakable. They could see the gospel with such clarity. They never forgot that day when they received the Spirit. The whole, the whole description is experiential, surely, surely so. So what is the outpouring of the Spirit? Well, it's surely a gift of assurance. It is a sealing of salvation. It is a, it is a sealing of sonship. It is, it is your being made to know and to be sure that you are a child of God. You have not received, notice the word received, you have not received the spirit of bondage to go back again into fear. You, you've had something which absolutely delivers you from fear forever. You will never go back into fear. You've not received the spirit of bondage to go back to fear. You've received the spirit of sonship, the spirit who makes you feel that you're a child of God, and it leads you to cry. You cry out, Abba, Father, you know that God is your Father. You, you, you knew already. You already knew. His spirit witnesses with our spirit. Our spirit already knew. We already knew that we were children of God. But now his spirit confirms or seals something which we already knew. His spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. It's what happened to Jesus in the River Jordan. As he was coming up after the River Jordan, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my son. Jesus knew that already. As a 12-year-old boy, Jesus said, I should be about my father's business. He was born of the Spirit. He was conceived of the Spirit. The Spirit was already in him. He already knew that he was the child of God in a, in a unique way. So what, what's coming from heaven on that day when he's baptized with the Spirit? When he's anointed and baptized in water and then he prays and the Spirit is poured upon him. What's happening? Is, he, is Jesus getting saved? Jesus getting converted? And the Spirit comes down upon him? No, no. What's happening is an assurance of sonship. His sonship is being sealed. Even a voice comes from heaven. You are my son. And he, he gets up. He has a new power. He knows more than ever that he's the, he's the son of God. He goes out with a power that even Jesus did not have before. His power is coming from a sealing of sonship. This is, this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody said he was seeking power. Those two elderly ladies persuaded him to seek power. But when he describes the experience, he doesn't mention the word power. He says, I had such an experience of his love. He was praying for power, but he got love. I, I felt so much how, God, how much God loved me. It sort of knocked me over. It, it was so intense. I had to say to God, Lord, please don't give me any more. I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stop, stop doing this to me. This was the El Moody's great experience. So... It's uh, an intensification of our feeling of sonship. 
It is when we cannot but God but call God our Father. It's when we know with a, a direct, irrefutable certainty. The Puritans used to call it infallible assurance. That was their, their phrase for this outpouring of the Spirit. Infallible assurance. They, they spoke of assurance, but they said there's a higher kind of assurance. There's an assurance of salvation which is, as it were, infallible. You're hearing almost a direct voice of God. It's like hearing a voice. I didn't say it is a voice. I said it's like hearing a voice. There's this infallible assurance as the Puritans used to say and so on. What's its relationship to gifts? What's its relationship to gifts of, uh, of preaching or whatever your gift might be? Well, the answer is whatever gift you've got will be empowered. It's not, it's not itself a gift, but it, it empowers any gift you've got. If you are a preacher, you, you, you'll find a power in preaching that you did not know before. If, if you have some other gift, you have the gift of mercy or gift of administration, you'll find a kind of lubrication. That's why the word anointing is used. What's oil used for? Well, it's, it's used to make you feel comfortable. You anoint your head with oil and you feel a bit more relaxed. Or you put oil in a machine, you lubricate, you use oil to lubricate, make things flow. And when the anointing of the Spirit is there, there's a lubrication, there's a flowing, there's an ease. You do things with great ease. You're, even the way you speak is changed. You're very, you're very, uh, your very face is changed. I have a little booklet that's very rare. I've only ever seen one copy. That's the copy that I have given, given to me by Dr. Kendall. And he was given it by Dr. Lloyd-Jones. It's sort of come down from, from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. A little booklet, I Met a Man with a Shining Face, is the title of the booklet. I Met a Man with a Shining Face. It's the story of a, a young preacher who was quite a capable guy and a bit proud of himself as being a very capable preacher, getting to be well-known, sitting, sitting in a big, big congregation one day with all these ministers on the uh, platform with him. As he looked around, he, he saw this man whose face was shining. His face was shining. And he was staring at this man. And then the man looked, turned to him and said, Young man, do you know what it is to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire? And he answered, no, but if it's what makes your face shine, I want it. <laughs> if it's what makes your face shine, I want it. And uh, the great famous Robert Murray McShane, uh, the story is told that, that he would be praying in his vestry and he would come out of his vestry and there would be such a kind of glow on his face that people would begin to weep. People would get, would get saved before he opened his mouth. Simply looking at him, coming out of the vestry, would, would uh, change his... Uh, it would be, would be great, greatly powerful in congregation. I knew a man in Zambia once. Some of you will know him. Jim Holdcroft. Do you remember Jim Holdcroft? Uh, a sort of studious, somewhat introvert, nice guy, doing the same postgraduate course that I was doing. Member of the Southern Baptist Church, doing some teaching up country, a long way away. And we, we were friends, and I knew him quite well. And then for many, many years, I didn't see him. And one day, I was preaching in Westminster Chapel, and he somehow heard about me on the, on the website or something, came to Westminster Chapel. The very second I walked into the pulpit, I saw him. His face was shining. I thought, that's not the Jim Holcroft I knew. His face was shining. It was like an angel shining out in the middle of the congregation. I went to see him afterwards. Hey, Jim, what happened to you? And he told me something of his story. He had been baptized with the Spirit. And his face was shining. It would happen to Moses. He would go and he would be praying. And uh, he'd build that little tent, not the tabernacle, but another little tent. He would go and he would pray inside that tent. And then when he came out, his face would be shining. And when people are touched with the Spirit, it transforms their voice, the very way of speaking. It transforms their power. They even look different. There's a kind of glow in their face. There's a kind of touch of glory about them. They're almost shining. The greater your sense of God's presence. I've seen it with children. I've seen it with children. I, w I was in uh, Ethiopia about, uh, when was it? about two years ago and I was preaching in, in a tribe where there's been revival in, in interior um, Ethiopia. It took two days traveling by bus to get into the deep inter interior in the direction of Sudan from Addis Ababa. 
And I was there, a big congregation, five or six hundred people in torrential rain in the wet season and a revival going on there. And I was uh, preaching one night upon the cross. My interpretation, I couldn't understand the, 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 the dialect. It was in the, I think the tribe is called the Amolo tribe, and I, I didn't know the uh, dialect, so I couldn't uh, follow a word anybody was saying. But I was preaching. And then after preaching, I, I sat down, and there was a little girl there. She must have been about... Uh, 12, and uh, we were, everybody was just sitting there quietly, just after the sermon, and this little girl began to, to, to sing a song. I think it was about the cross. I'd been preaching on the cross. And she begins to sing a song. And two or three people around her begin to join in. And, and so there's a little group all singing in, in the front row of the congregation. And, and it grows and it grows. Everybody else joins in. So the little girl stands up and she begins to lead a congregation of 600 people. She's about 12 years old. She begins to lead the entire congregation singing and worshipping the Lord. And her face is shining, shining. Just a 12-year-old. And uh, I've known many children like that. I was in Ethiopia once and a girl, little girl, again, about 12 years old, said, uh, can I, can I, uh, do, you have, do you have any daughters? She said to me. I said, yeah. She said, can I write to her? And I said, well, she's about 40. The girl's only about 12. She's thinking, yeah, I've got some little baby daughter. And she, then she said, oh, well, can I write to you then? I said, yeah, I'll write if you want to. I give her my address. And a few months later, I get a letter from this 12-year-old girl. So nice knowing someone like you. You can give me advice. I like to preach, she says. She's 12 years old. I like to preach about the secrets of the heart and how the Lord deals with us in the inner man. She's about 12 years old. Then revival comes. Children become alive. Look at Dr. Lloyd-Jones' books on Romans. Look at them carefully. Look at the front cover. On the front cover of Dr. Lloyd-Jones preaching on Romans with a congregation of 1,200, you'll see children sitting on the front, front row, hanging on to every word. He'll preach for 55 minutes. Children hanging on to every, every, every word. And sometimes their faces are shining. Their faces are shining. Little children who've been baptized with the Spirit. There is such a thing as the experience of the Spirit. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to intimidate anybody. I'm I'm willing to accept there's great variety in these things. The the gift of the Spirit can knock you down as it did D.L. Moody. But it doesn't have to. It can be gentle. It can be sweet. The working of the Spirit can be sweet. As my friend Charlie likes to say, my saying is, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. It doesn't matter how intense or the big struggle, whether you're knocked to the ground, whether you must get to the point where you know that you've been sealed, your salvation's been sealed, and you do, you do know the power of the Spirit is there. The outpouring or the baptism of the Spirit is the first time when you experience the fullness of the Spirit upon you. How does it relate to gifts? It, it enlarges your gift. Whatever gift you've got, it enlarges your gift, gives you a touch of power, anointing and lubrication. Maybe even your face will shine. What's its relation to holiness? Well, it's not directly a relation to a gift of holiness. It won't, won't make you uh, feel not sin anymore. Although you will feel that way. The, re- the reason why the early Methodists so often thought this was a, a gift of holiness is because it feels that way. You feel as though you'll never sin again. But actually you do. Sin's not being eradicated. You, you, feel, you feel as though it has. You feel as though sin's been eradicated. You're never going to sin again. But actually you soon discover you're still human after all. You're not an angel just yet. And sin's not being eradicated. You still have to battle against sin. But it's, it's, like, it's like the wet season coming in Africa. You know, in the middle of Africa and everything's dry and yellow and, and straw-like. And it's not been any rain for three or four months. And then one day the heavens are opened and the rainy season comes and the rain pours down. And within days everything is green and things are springing up. Flowers are appearing. You can almost see things. You can watch things growing. You get up one day and it's bigger the next day. Things are leaping and and fructifying and growing and, and turning luscious and green and beautiful. That's the outpouring of the Spirit. There was life there already. Even when it was yellow and dry and and nothing seemed to be there, there was life there. But when there's an outpouring from on high, it speeds everything up. Everything turns green and luscious. And something like that happens in the Christian life. It's not a gift of sanctification, but the sanctification that's slowly at work in you, it is speeded up. You'll love God, you'll want to pray. Fruit of the Spirit will appear all over the place in your life. It speeds up 
your dedication and your love of God. It's not directly a gift of holiness, but it speeds up your progress and your sanctification, your fruitfulness for God. What is the relation to the gift of tongues? Well, I think the early Pentecostals made a mistake. I don't think we should say the gift of the Spirit is tongues, which tends to be the way it is, isn't it? When someone says, we're going to come forward, we're going to pray for you, that you might be baptised with the Spirit, normally, nowadays, the only thing somebody's wanting is for you to speak in tongues. And that's really acting as though the baptism with the Spirit is tongues. And that's, not, that's surely not right. It turns, it turns your fellowship into a tongues cult where you reject anybody that doesn't speak in tongues, where you deny that anybody's baptised in the Spirit unless they speak in tongues, which has strange consequences. It means that D.L. Moody wasn't baptised with the Spirit. It means some of the most powerful people ever known in the planet were not baptised with the Spirit because they didn't speak in tongues. You become a kind of tongues sect or a tongues cult. No, you mustn't talk as though the baptism of the Spirit is tongues. And you mustn't, in trying to help people or pray for people, you mustn't just be trying to get them to talk in tongues. That surely is an extremism. Uh, You mustn't do that. Although anything can happen, and certainly your prayer life will take off, and you may well speak in tongues, but it's not a rule or a law. And uh, surely some of the most powerful people do not, obviously, baptise with great power, do not necessarily speak in tongues. One of my great heroes is John Welsh. John, yeah, John Welsh. You know John Welsh? He was the son-in-law of John Knox. His, John, the famous reformer of Scotland, John Knox, his daughter, married a guy called John Welsh. He was a great preacher. Got into trouble in Scotland, and they finally banished him. They threw him out of the country. Had to run for his life to France. And when he went to France, he, he learnt French and began to preach, and finally became a a famous preacher in France. He was known as the man, he was said that he, he prayed more than anybody in France. And if you ask the question, well, how, how, how do people know that he prayed more than anybody else in France? The answer is that no matter what time you ever went to in the middle of the night, he was praying. You, you, you go to him at two o'clock in the morning and listen to outside his bedroom and be praying. You, you go three or four, whatever, whenever you went to his bedroom to hear what was going on in the middle of the night, he was always praying. When the, when the guy ever went to sleep, nobody knows. People said he prays more than anybody else in France. And he became famous as a man of prayer and power in preaching. And so, so people would come and live with him. Students would come and say, can, can, can I follow your ministry? And, and guys would attach themselves to him. One day, one of them died. One of the people living with John Welsh and his wife died. And they prayed for him, but uh, he was dead. Doctors came and said, no, nothing you can do for him, he's He's dead. His parents came and they brought a coffin in order to bury him. And John Wells said, no, no, he's not dead. He's, he's, he's all right, he's still alive, he's not dead. And he said, of course he's dead, he's been dead for, for, for hours. Doctors came along and stuck knives in him, all sorts of ways of proving that he, that he wasn't in any way conscious. And Wells would say, no, let me pray with him. And he, wouldn't, he wouldn't let them bury him. The next day, they come up and say, well, no, no, no he's, he's, he's definitely dead. Let's bury him today. And he said, no, no, I still want to pray for him. I can't bury him yet. They got up a third day and said, no, no, look, we really want to bury this guy. It's very hot weather. His, his body's going to be declining any moment now. We really must bury him. John Wells said, just give me, the, give me the morning. Let me keep praying. He stays with the dead body of this boy who's been dead for two and a half days. And as Welsh is praying, the boy wakes up and comes back to life. And uh, he walks out and gives them to the parents and the doctor. Welsh was known for raising the dead. He would outline Scottish history. He would say, well, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. He would outline the future of Scottish history. And then there would be some persecution. And his wife would come to him and say, well, is this the persecution you predicted? He would say, no, that's nothing. The real persecution is yet to come. And when those great persecutions would fall upon the Presbyterians of Scotland, Welsh had already outlined the future history of Scotland. He would know decades ahead where where the the land was going to go. But I say all that to say this. He never spoke in tongues. 
Are you going to tell me he didn't have the Spirit? Are you going to tell me he, did, he, didn't, he wasn't baptized in the Spirit? He's a man who can raise the dead, who has a gift of prophecy that is amazingly accurate decades in advance. It's not guesswork. It is uh, in detail predicting the future of Scotland. And you can read his uh, biography. It still exists. But are you going to say that such a guy is, is not baptized with the Spirit? You can be baptized with the Spirit when you don't even believe in the bapti- baptism of the Spirit. Uh, would you like to tell me that Billy Graham's not, not baptized with the Spirit? He's a man of great power. You talk about power. Uh, I met him once in Cambridge. Sort of met him. Trod on my toe. I've not quite forgiven him for that. But uh, he came to a, to a church where I was uh, visiting. I was just a student. Uh, and he came over to the church. And he was preaching somewhere in Cambridge. And he came to give a notice. He came to say, you know, I'm preaching down the road. It's another church. You come. He was just giving the notices. And I tell you, it's the most powerful thing I ever heard. If he'd, if he'd sang just as, I, just as I am, I would have walked forward. I mean, there was such power. He was only giving the notices. But he said, you come, you come. And we, I wanted to come straight away right now. Where's the next taxi going? There was such power. There was such a gift of exhortation. Such a gift of wanting to respond. That's, that's his gift. You only, you only say, I want to get out of your seat. Half, half the audience get up out of their seats. And he can do it even when giving the notices. Are you telling me he doesn't have the power of the Spirit? He's never been baptized of the Spirit? He's a typical Southern Baptist. He doesn't believe in the baptism of the Spirit in any charismatic sense. But you can surely know the Spirit's power, even though you weren't taught. You don't know what vocabulary to use. You're not using the right language, but you can't tell me that these men don't have, some of these men like Billy Graham, you can't tell me they don't have the power of the Spirit upon them. Of course they do. Don't become a tongues sect. Don't become a tongues cult. When I see my time is gone, probably been half, a, half an hour ago, my stopwatch is stopped. But uh, don't become a tongues sect or a cult. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit is receiving power. It's assurance of sonship. It lubricates prayer. It enables you to pray as never before. It might even make your face shine. It will give you a boldness. It will enlarge your gifts. It will make you feel that, that, that God is right close to you, near to you. It may be dramatic. It may knock you over. It may not. It may be sweet and, and, and calm. It might be more like the tide coming in than, than something just than a, than a massive rainburst. I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. You must know something of the power of the Spirit in your life. If you don't know it, seek it. Go and ask God. Say the Lord, you promise it. It's the promise of the Father. God promises every child of God. He promises you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. It's the promise of the Father. It is the supreme new covenant promise. God doesn't keep it. You can complain. You can say, well, Lord, I thought you gave me a promise. Go and plead the promise. Say, well, Lord, you told me you'd do this. How come you haven't done it? And you plead the promise. Anything might happen. Your church might be burnt to the ground as it, as it was with D.L. Moody. Anything, you might be plunged into suffering. God may purify you, get you ready. Anything might happen when you start seeking God. Satan won't like it. You can be sure about that. Go on seeking and don't seek a gift. Don't seek tongues. Don't seek an experience. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Seek the fellowship, the presence of the Lord Jesus. Ask God to pour out his spirit. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does the Father know how to give the spirit to those who ask him? Ask him. Seek for him. Don't, don't let yourself be manipulated. No, it's not psychological trickery. It's not someone getting you to speak in tongues. I'm not against tongues. And if you want to know, I pray in tongues. But, but, but still, that's not the important thing. It's not the gift of tongues. It's the presence of God making you feel and know that you're a child of God. And that is what empowers you. The power is not just being plugged into an electric current. It's the power that comes from your assurance that you are a child of God. Because you are sons, God has given you the spirit of his son. You're getting a bit like Jesus. You've got his power, rivers of living water coming out of you. This he said of the spirit that those who believe should receive. John chapter 7. And give God no rest until you know something of his power. doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. Seek these outpourings and baptisms. You say, can it happen again? Yes. 
the baptism of the Spirit is just the name for the first time it ever happens to you. But you can be filled again and again and again. It can happen many, many times to you. Uh, Acts chapter 2 is followed by Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, they're in trouble. And they go and they pray. And they say, Lord, grant to your servants boldness. And God shakes the building. And once again, they get the same power that they had a, a week or so before. There's another little Pentecost, Pentecost just after Pentecost. Happens again. And all the same kind of phenomena appears as they were upon the day of Pentecost. And the very building is shaken. And all these manifestations of power come out again. They go out and they do the very thing they were told not to do. They preach the word of God with boldness. That's what they asked for. They didn't say, Lord, don't let us get into trouble. Lord, please keep us from prison. Please, please, we apologize that we, we disturb the peace. They say, Lord, grant to your servants boldness. And God shakes the building and he pours out the spirit upon them again. And they go out with boldness. Well, we are meant to know something of this. And revival is when it happens to all of us at the same time. And the whole movement comes into being and everybody is quickened and alivened and awakened and feels the touch of God's power and presence. I was, I was confusing just now what happened to Wesley at Aldersgate Street with what happened to him in Fessor Lane. But now let, let me tell you the Fessor Lane story, the reason why I'm confusing the two, the two places. They were praying one night in Fessor Lane. After the great experience of John Wesley, they were praying together. All these people who didn't quite agree, Moravians and Whitfield and Wesley, they were all praying. And then about 2 o'clock in the morning, as they're praying all night, suddenly the Spirit is poured out upon the whole prayer meeting. And they stand up and they start worshipping, praising God as never before. These things happened all the time in early Methodism. and happens in, in, in early Pentecostalism. It happens even anywhere in Africa, other places where there's revival, God pours out the Spirit. Because you are sons, God gives you the Spirit of his Son, baptizes you with the same kind of power that the Lord Jesus Christ has. We, we don't make any rules, and this is subject to endless varieties. There's no standardized experience or standardized procedure. But in one way or another, you must know the spirit of adoption, the love of God shed abroad in your hearts by the spirit that has been given to you. Let's stand and let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you will quicken our desire, that you will quicken our appetite for your presence and your power in our lives, enlarge our vision of what's possible. Pray that we may not get stuck in old, in any kind of formalism where we feel we've got it all, Oh, Lord, deliver us from that kind of grieving of the Spirit where we claim to have everything, but it's not there in any conscious way. Please, Lord, come and touch us. May we feel your presence. May we know your face. May our very faces begin to shine with, with your glory upon us. Come and empower us and pray that you'll do it not just for ones and twos, but for the whole nation, that people in this land may feel your touch of power. Raise up new Wesleys. Raise up new Whitfields. Raise up new Daniel Rowlands, new Howell Harrises. Put change this land again. That's by the power of your Holy Spirit upon the preaching of your word. Do it, we pray, we ask it. Do it in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.